0: Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast, Tuesday Theology Edition. At Scotts Hill, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So on Tuesday nights, our pastors teach a class focused on topics within systematic theology. They do this to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. This podcast is a recording of that teaching session. Enjoy. Well, good evening, everybody. We're glad that you guys came out tonight for our Third week of Tuesday theology. We're going to pray and then we're going to jump right into our study so we can maximize this next hour that we have together. So, would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to study together. I pray that as we do that, you would give us attentiveness, that you would allow us, even after a long day, for our minds to be fresh and to be alert. Uh, to be ready to receive that which you uh, desire to teach us. So I pray that you would uh, help us in that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week and this week we are talking about the attributes of scripture that are vital to our understanding of of God and of his word. And so tonight we're going to talk about three more of those attributes of scripture. Um, but before we do that, I want to give you guys an acronym that I think will be helpful for you in remembering these. So you can remember them with a really easy acronym word. Uh, if you're trying to remember, what are, the, what are the attributes of Scripture that we studied? What are the things that we need to remember? And here's, the, uh, here's the, the acronym. It's SCAN, okay? SCAN is a great little acronym to remember the sufficiency, the clarity, the authority, and the necessity of Scripture, okay? Now, I know some of you are remembering what you studied last week, and you said, well, I think there was an I in there, too. We talked about inerrancy along the way, and, and that's right. If you remember that, then you are, uh, then you are uh, at the top of the class in remembering what you learned last week. Um, but usually, that inerrancy is actually put under the category of authority in Scripture, and the reality is uh, if I letter, if I added the letter I to scan, I couldn't come up with a cool acronym for you. And so, scans what we have. Um, now, I know some of you will spend the rest of the night trying to figure out how to make an acronym with I in it. Now, just let me. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> just work on it when you go home, and then you can shoot me an email, and uh, and we can work on writing our own book about about the uh, attributes of Scripture. Um, but for tonight, just remember that. Scan is a great way to remember those four attributes of Scripture that we're going to be talking about or, and have talked about. And tonight, we're going to start with, with the C, with the clarity of Scripture. And the questions that we're trying to answer with that are these. Can we know what the Bible means? Or another way to say that, is God an effective communicator? Is God an effective communicator? Can we understand the message that God is seeking to give us. So let's start with the definition that Wayne Grudem gives in his book. It says, the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Now, as we read scripture and seek to understand it, we find that reality is that some places are easier to understand than others. We know uh, that when we read that there are mysteries that God has given us, there are language structures that may be unfamiliar to us. So as we consider this reality, that this is what God desires is a clarity of scripture, we understand that this, this definition can actually really be useful for us in guarding us against three traps. Now these aren't in the book, but there are three traps that this uh, doctrine, the clarity of scripture can really guard us from. Three dangers. The first is that that God's word is too hard to understand. And so we need an interpreter, right? Now this is is a doctrine. This is a a challenge to the clarity of scripture that in many ways uh, sparked the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The claim from uh, the Catholic church was that the authorized interpretation of the church was necessary in order for the Bible to be properly understood. That is, you guys, the common people, wouldn't be able to understand what God's word says, and therefore, you would need somebody to be able to tell you what it meant. Somebody to tell you what it meant, because it's going to be interpreted from a language that you don't really know how to use. Uh, in, uh, in, the early, in the 1500s, that would have been Latin, right? So the mass would have been done in Latin. How many of you guys know Latin? Yep, that's about what they did too. And so the reality was, Said it's too hard for you to understand these mysteries. You can't understand these things, and so you need an interpreter. God's word is not sufficiently clear on its own, but the church must decide what scripture says. Now, this isn't too different than some things that we see today. Celebrity pastors and people's dependence upon them to tell them what the scripture says rather than learning for themselves. The second danger is that it is too high to understand. It's too high to understand. And this would be a guard against uh, radicals or mysticism in in understanding, uh, in understanding the Bible. God is really too transcendent. He's too far outside of human language for you to be able to actually understand it with words. And so what you need is a, a unique experience or a direct revelation from God to be able to have a relationship with him. You see, this encourages more towards an experience rather than reading the clear words that God's given us in the Bible. The third is that there are just too many interpretations for me to understand. And so I'm just gonna give up. I'm just gonna give up reading. You see, if scripture is so clear, why in the world are there so many interpretations anyways? Maybe a question that you've asked and you think that this is really, this is really just because of the Bible. But if we just take a moment and think about it, if I put any document in front of all of us, the same document, each one of you are going to understand it in a different way. You're going to read that document no matter what it is, and you're going to have a different interpretation than the person beside you. So the reality is it's not a problem with the text. It's a problem with us as people. We have a problem when it comes to reading the Bible. So suppose that you're interacting with people, and they have these objections uh, that they they believe, or maybe they even tell you. We're going to have a little bit of an interactive opportunity here. So if it was you— how would you define the clarity of Scripture, and why would you say that Scripture is clear? How would you define it, and why would you say that it's clear? Okay, so this is how we talk about the clarity of Scripture. First, we see that the Bible frequently affirms its own clarity. Now, I'm going to give you two places where we see this uh, in Scripture. First is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is what what God says. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Just like you guys have said, the Bible is written in such a way that God's expectation for any Jewish family was that the parents could take the Bible that they were given, the revelation that God gave them, and lead their children to understand not just what it means, but how to live in light of what it means. So there's no clarity as to what they should do in response to the word of God. Now, not only that, Jesus affirms the clarity of scripture as well. He says it over and over, but I think there's one example that is, uh, that is just a unique picture for us to be able to capture this. It's in Matthew chapter 19. Remember this, when the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking... Is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, oftentimes, when we think about the Pharisees, uh, we think that they're all alike, right? That they're all the same kind, that the same people basically in the same group. Well, they weren't. Uh, even in Pharisaism, there were different schools of thought. And this passage is kind of a hinge point or a reality that that is part of this conflict. You have two schools of thought that are pitted against each other, on the issue of divorce. You have the school of thought that's led by the Rabbi Hillel. Okay? He's gonna say that that divorce is 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 really is, is acceptable for any reason. Right? Your wife burns the bread. It's acceptable reason to divorce her. There's any reason whatsoever that you can come up with, virtually any reason is acceptable grounds for divorce. And you have Rabbi Shammai who was stricter and said that Moses was only dealing with the issue of sexual immorality and sexual sin in, uh, in, in terms of divorce. And so what they do? They ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, what is, what is the, the reality for this? And Jesus could have said, you know, you guys, this is, a, this, is a real, this is a real stumper. This one's too tough. This one is just so unclear that you guys, what you need to do Hillel, Shammai, you guys just get together. You bring your interpretation. You bring your interpretation. You sit down, you talk about it for a little bit. We'll call in a few other people with their interpretation. We'll just see what we can come up with as kind of like the, the baseline for what is acceptable. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He answers them this way. He says, have you not read? Have you not read what the Bible says? Have you not read? He points back to the reality that there is a clear answer to this situation. Jesus brings clarity to the situation. And he tells him this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus takes them back to the Bible. He takes them back to the clear instruction that God has given from the beginning. And he says, this is, this is a pretty clear statement. And, and he helps them to see that the obscurity is, it isn't with obscurity, but it is with unwillingness. It's with unwillingness in their lives to accept the clear teaching of scripture. Now, as you think about how you can interact with people that are, that are asking the question about, about clarity of scripture. One of the questions that you might be able to ask them is this. It might sound a little bit, you might say, I don't know about that, the way that you worded that, but here we go. Here's how I might ask them. How do you come to the scriptures? How do you come to the scriptures? Or there's another way you might say this. There are moral and spiritual qualities needed for right understanding. We know that that scripture, the ability to interpret it, doesn't necessarily coincide with intellectual ability. We've already talked about that kids are to be able to understand that. Some kids are at a higher intellectual ability, some are at a lower, but many, but all of them are at a lower intellectual ability than most adults, right? So their ability to understand it isn't based on their intellect. Psalm 25 9 says this, He, God, leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. We see that in our approach to Scripture, we must be res- willing to receive its teaching. We must be Postured in a place of humility in coming to the word of God if we seek to understand it correctly. Anyone who is willing to receive it, and we've, you read in the book that even unbelievers seeking salvation and believers seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ, there is an opportunity for them to understand clearly. Now, oftentimes when I speak with people and they refer to scripture being hard to understand or obscure, oftentimes their starting point isn't one of faith. They're not coming asking the question, is this reliable or is this true? They're coming with an already predetermined thought in their mind that it's not true and that they're coming to try and disprove it in their own lives. They come with doubt and questioning rather than coming with humility, asking to understand what God's word is seeking to teach them. So another question for us, as you've interacted with people, maybe you've talked to people, what have you found? Why do people misunderstand Scripture? What are some of the things that you've observed, maybe in your own life or maybe in those that you've interacted with? Why do people misunderstand Scripture? I do think for us uh, that it's pertinent to acknowledge whenever we're reading the Bible that clarity is not the same as simplicity, okay? Clarity is not the same as simplicity uh, in the sense that we say that not all texts are as simple and straightforward as others. We would acknowledge that, right? Whenever we read the Bible. There are things that we need to take more time to study and understand, okay? Uh, we see that even in, uh, even in the, the scriptural writers themselves. We see this in Second in Peter. And Peter writes, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, uh, just as our beloved brother Paul also write to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand." which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we recognize that there are things that are hard to understand. That doesn't mean that they're impossible to understand. It just means that there's a little bit more work that we have to do to understand them. We also understand that the the lack of clarity does not lie on the side of the scripture, but on the side of the reader. I was reading an article recently, and the the author gives several reasons about the, the unfamiliar, the lack of understanding with scripture. He says, some cases a lack of familiarity either with the language in which the text has been given to us or the wider context of the Bible, just like you were saying, ma'am, can lead to uncertainty or confusion or a misreading of a particular text. Sometimes the diverse opinions arise from the very questions we are asking of the biblical text as we come with different agendas, just like you were saying, uh, and insist on answers to questions the text itself was never addressing in the first place. Most serious of all these instances where differences occur because one group or another refuse to let the biblical text call us to repent of wrong thinking or wrong behavior, and so we invent ways of explaining the text that are less demanding of us. So since there are a variety of ways in which people misunderstand the Bible, it's important that we develop proper tools so that we can faithfully understand and interpret the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to give you guys a big word here. You've already read it, but we're going to give it here again. Uh, that word is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is uh, the process by which we seek to understand a message. The principles uh, in this, this, the hermeneutics is the study of the principles by which a passage is to be interpreted. Okay, so this is the principles by which the passage is to be interpreted. Now, within that, uh, there, are, uh, there are other things that we see. Uh, this word that you guys saw as you read through it, the word exegesis, okay? Exegesis. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of or to take out of. So whenever we're reading the Bible, exegesis uh, is the interpreter being led to conclusions by following the course of the text, by, by drawing out of the text what the author intended for us to learn and understand. Exegesis is the act of studying a passage critically and objectively and interpreting that meaning. I'm going to give you four ways in which we do faithful exegesis, okay? So you guys can write these things down. First, uh, we, we go to the text and say, what does the passage say? What does the passage say? What does it say? Just clearly as we read it, what does it say? Observation. Interpretation. What does the passage mean? Correlation. How does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible? And this is an important part of interpreting scripture. Um, the reformers and others call it the analogy of faith. You may have heard it said like this, scripture interprets itself. Scripture interprets scripture. So whenever we're having trouble in one part of the Bible, there's a good chance that God in his wisdom, because he wrote the whole thing, has addressed it in fuller detail or, or in different ways somewhere else in the Bible. And we can go to other passages to help us understand what's going on. And lastly, application. How should this passage affect my life? Now, when we think of exegesis, coming to the Bible, this is the question that we should be asking of each text, and it's this. What does it mean for me? What does this passage mean for me? What does it mean for me to think about differently? What does it mean for me to do differently? What does it mean for me to believe differently? What does this passage mean for me? Now, there's another way in which people interpret scripture that can get us into a lot of danger, and that word is called eisegesis. Eisegesis. The word eisegesis literally means to lead into or read into a passage of scripture. This means that the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever he or she wants wants it to mean. Now, it may be by taking uh, cultural material and imposing it on the text. Let's take, for example, love, right? You read a passage in Scripture about the love of God. Now, in our culture, love means all kinds of things, doesn't it? It could mean non-judgmentalism. It could mean tolerance. It could mean whatever, whatever our culture says it means. And if we take that definition of love and we decide that that's what the Bible means by love, by our own reading into it, And we've changed what God is love means. We've turned it into something the Bible and the biblical writers would have never understood that sentence to mean. The question that oftentimes we see as it relates to eisegesis is this, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? Because in that, then I become the final arbiter of what this passage of scripture means. No longer is God the one that is directing me with what this passage means. It is me who becomes the one that decides what is truth instead of receiving from God's word his revelation, his clear revelation. Is that all? You guys with me on that? Eisegesis, exegesis, new terms. we all pretty familiar with those? Okay. All right, good. So what does this... What does this uh, doctrine mean for us? (laughs) Let's do a little exegesis of the clarity of Scripture. What does it mean for us as believers? What does the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture mean for us practically? What does it mean for us practically? It means you can read the Bible, right? That's what this doctrine helps us to understand, that every one of us has the same access to the Word of God, this gift that God has given us, as everybody else And that we can go to it and God is speaking directly to us in this. And there's clear understanding with language that we can know what he intends for us to do in response to it, okay? That means that every morning you can get up and you can read the Bible on your own. And you don't have to call somebody and say, hey, what does this mean? I don't understand this. I need a different language interpreted to me. No, you can do that for encouragement, but God has given you all that you need by his word and his spirit to understand uh, understand the clear teaching of scripture. Now, we do also recognize and you looked at this in the book that there there is still scholarship that happens. So, what is the role of scholars in in the re, in relation to the clarity of scripture, okay? A couple of things that we saw in there, um, one it is to, to help teach scripture clearly, right? Scholarship is helpful in understanding things that maybe we don't understand. Maybe we don't have a a, a great background with Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And so scholarship is very helpful in us understanding what those words actually mean in, in real life, okay? And then from there, we can teach those things clearly so that as we teach, the clarity of God's Word is given to the people that are hearing, right? We want to make sure that that is an essential part of our teaching. Second, it, we can explore new areas of understanding, right? We can learn as it relates to maybe particular areas in, in, uh, in the Bible and learn about new areas of understanding. We can defend against attacks by other scholars or those with specialized training. I can't tell you how grateful I am that we have a good friend who is a Hebrew professor, and that whenever I talk to him, I can know that he's going and doing more studies about Hebrew and, and the creation of the world. And, and there are people that are calling to say, hey, would you come to the Grand Canyon? And, and I can show you on this guided river tour how the Grand Canyon shows us that the accounts in Genesis are reality. And so he's learning to be able to teach in a seminary or a college level to help people understand more about the Bible in contrast to those who may be teaching something different or trying to draw people away. Lastly, it is a supplement. It is a supplement, the study of Scripture for the church, okay? So it is a helpful supplement as it relates to our study, thinking of commentaries or other Bible Bible programs that we have the opportunity to look at. Okay, the next doctrine uh, as it relates to Scripture, uh, the necessity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, These questions that we're trying to answer with this, for what purposes is the Bible necessary? How much can people know about God without the Bible? This is what I want you to do, just a second. Name some things that you know the Bible is absolutely unnecessary to know something about. Absolutely unnecessary. I don't even want to be close to being necessary. Unnecessary. Okay, I'm looking for something like absolutely unnecessary. Unnecessary. Water's wet. That would be a good one. What else? How a, How a washer works. Right? It's not necessary for knowing that, is it? What else? How to cook dinner. Amen. That's, that's true. Anything else? Okay, you guys are really struggling with this one. Like, there's a lot out there that the Bible is really unnecessary for. But the point is that there are things in our lives that the Bible is absolutely unnecessary for, right? And the Bible doesn't claim to be necessary for those things. It doesn't claim to be necessary to know how to cook or how to how to wash the clothes or how to fix a car or how to ride a bike. It doesn't claim to be necessary for those things. However, there are things that the Bible claims to be necessary for. And those things are absolutely vital to us. The definition is this. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel for maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary, Junior you are correct, for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. Now that is a very comprehensive definition. I like it, but I like another one better. Uh, And it's because we taught it to our kids. Now, you might say, oh, that's cool. Um, it comes from a, uh, an old Baptist catechism, and this is how it goes. You might say, I don't like that one as much, but I do. All right, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God, but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually or effectively for the salvation of sinners. So, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there's a God, but his word and his spirit only do it fully and effectually for our salvation. So, can people know anything about God apart from the Bible? Yes. If so, what can they know? What can they know about him? He exists, right? So he is, okay? His invisible attributes, his majesty, okay? His power, Order, right? So yeah, we've talked about that even in terms of clarity of Scripture, right? He's not a god of confusion. There's order in creation all around us. I mean, it's phenomenal—the uh, order that God has uh, instituted in creation. Now, what you guys are uh, describing is what what theologians call general revelation. General revelation. Sometimes it's called natural revelation, but it's the revelation that is uh, in God, uh, that is of God. Everywhere. It's his disclosure that everybody receives by virtue of being alive. If you are alive, then you have experienced God's general revelation. It's called this because of its audience. It's, it's, it's available to all people who receive this revelation and its content because it is not specific as it relates to salvation. There are two aspects of general revelation, okay? The first one is nature, right? Nature. We see this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Again, we see the reality that nature presents us with the existence and attributes of God in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, God has created this world in such a way that people perceive that he exists, that he's powerful, that he's glorious, that he is true. We also see that God has given us general revelation in morality, in morality or in conscience, in our consciences. We see that this, at least some demands of God's law are known to every single human conscience, regardless of where they live. They live on an island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There is some there is some understanding of God's law written on every human conscience. See this in Romans chapter two. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Mosaic law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, we have even these two revelatory works, God's creation and our consciences that direct us to the reality that there is a God. Now, what do you guys think are some of the blessings of general revelation? Just the blessings of general revelation? Because we don't want to pass over this without realizing that there is a blessing of general revelation. What are some blessings of that? Childbirth, okay? Amen. What else? The beauty of creation, right? You can go out and enjoy a sunset, we can go to the ocean and, and, and have something of the magnitude of that and, and, and feel a, a sense of awe. What else? Are you glad we have laws? Restrains evil? It's a good thing, right? That's a, that is a, a, a byproduct or a reality based on God's general revelation that people aren't as bad as they could be, right? There, are, there is a work of conscience. There are ethics in your business practices, even with people that don't acknowledge that God exists. They are—maybe practice some ethical um, ethical uh, business practices, and it allows a context for the gospel to make sense. It allows a context. You see, with, with general revelation, there are, two, um, there are two realities, there are two aspects, but there is typically one effect, okay? There's one effect. The uninterpreted effect of general revelation is condemnation, not salvation, the uninterpreted effect of general revelation, that is, if someone is not there to tell them what this is all about, is condemnation and not salvation. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, so that they are without excuse. All of this that God has made leads people to be without excuse in acknowledging the reality and worshiping a creator. However, we know that that's not what an observation of creation leads people to. We continue on in Romans, and we know uh, that them being without excuse typically leads to worship of false idols, creating an image after their own desires to worship uh, in their lives. We see uh, in our, there's an article from Sam Storms. He's a, he's a pastor in Oklahoma. Ten things you should know about general revelation. General revelation is sufficiently accessible and clear to all mankind to render them without excuse for the failure and refusal to believe. No one will ever be able to justify their unbelief on the basis of a lack of revelation concerning the existence of God and their responsibility to worship him. No one is without excuse. No one has an excuse. However, general revelation is sufficient to render all without excuse. It is not sufficient for bringing a person into a saving relationship With God. He does note that the insufficiency isn't due to the deficiency in God or the manner in which He has made Himself known, but entirely due to our fallenness as humanity. We take what is revealed about God and we turn it into idol worship. We worship the creature rather than the Creator who is glorious. They truly and really know, and they hate and refuse to honor. This is true of all people everywhere, apart from God revealing himself in another way. See, this leads to condemnation and not salvation. While general revelation reveals that God exists and something about his character and attributes, it cannot give us revelation that is needed for salvation. General revelation leaves us condemned. That is why special revelation is absolutely necessary. So, we're going to talk just a minute about special revelation. What is special revelation? Special revelation is the only, it is the Bible. The Bible is special revelation. Refers to the the words that God has addressed to specific people, such as the people and the words in the Bible, the words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Now we recognize that this is the only, the scriptures, the Bible is the only written source of special revelation that we have. It is the only communication that God has given us in written form, for us to know him and to know him savingly. We see that this special revelation is described in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And this is where the writer says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Jen, notice that in verse 11 tells us something different about special revelation than it does about general revelation. There is an ability to understand true reality in relation to God in a direct way rather than a general observation. We can be warned, and there is great reward in keeping them. General revelation is just an observation. We just come to know that God exists. So the necessity of Scripture refers to mankind's utter dependence on God's special revelation in the Scriptures in order to obtain true knowledge of the gospel, his plan of salvation which cannot be learned through the general revelation of nature or conscience, although those things bear witness to it and gives us a context for it, okay? So it gives us a context and a direction, but it doesn't tell us the story. It doesn't tell us how to be saved. So I want us to take just a moment. You guys already have these, so this is kind of a softball question just to make sure we're all awake. What are three things for which the Bible is necessary? So we're going to go through the three that we're, we're, uh, we're, we went through in um, in, in the book. So first, the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel and salvation. Now, I want to ask you guys this question. What aspects of the gospel, direct or just from context, must we have the Bible to know? So whenever you think about the gospel, what are the aspects of the gospel that we must have the Bible to know? Think about some words, some phrases, some concepts we have to have the Bible to be able to understand about salvation or the gospel. Born again, okay? So what does it mean to be born again? The Bible, we have to have the Bible to understand that concept because none of us have ever experienced that, right? Like that's not a physical reality for any of us, okay? So you have to have the Bible to understand what that means. What else? Right, an atonement, right? A blood sacrifice. What does that mean? What is, what is the significance of that? What does that mean as it relates to Jesus? What else? is death and resurrection, right? So something that we've never experienced. Death, we will all, but resurrection, nobody's experienced that except for what we see in Scripture. Uh, and what does that mean? What is that even, why is that necessary? Okay, what else? Oh, okay, dead and trespasses. Yeah, yeah, so the reality that we've offended God and that there's no way we can make our way back to him, okay? Eternal life, what is eternal life? Right? What happens after we die? We have to have somebody to, to give us instruction about that, okay? What else? Eternal suffering, okay? So a condemnation and and God's wrath and judgment for all eternity, absolutely. The Trinity, sure. Yeah, we have to know that there is a a triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and 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 the way in which they work in in terms of salvation, absolutely. Okay, yeah, John 14, right? That there's a place that Jesus is preparing for us, and he's gonna go, and he's gonna come back and receive us to himself, absolutely. Yeah, so we have to know uh, many, many things that are directly connected to the Bible. That if we didn't have the Bible, we would not be able to make sense of it. We would not be able to understand the gospel apart from the Bible. We see that in uh, clearly as we think of Romans chapter 10. When we think of Romans chapter 10, uh, we we read this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the next is, how beautiful are the the feet of those who bring the good news, right? The reality is that we have to hear to be able to respond to the gospel. Either one must read the gospel message in a Bible or hear it from another person. It is directly related to God's special revelation to us. Someone, Someone said this already, the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. How is that true? How is the Bible necessary for maintaining spiritual life? We see in in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus talks about this. Answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we know that that he is quoting from the Old Testament. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. God's word is necessary for maintaining our spiritual life. The Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. We see in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, the writer says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. To know God's will is to know God's word, or to know God's word is to know God's will. He gives us his information. Oftentimes, we go look for special new revelation about God's will whenever we don't obey what he's already told us in the 66 books that he's given us. We want a new revelation about what God wants us to do rather than seeking to be faithful to what he's already told us in his word. So we are desperately in need of God's word to help us understand his will. The last we're going to talk about tonight is the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. Is the scripture enough for knowing what God wants us to think or to do. Is God's word enough? Is it enough? Or do we need some other book, some other teaching, some other source to help us understand what to think or do? Grudem defines it like this. At every point of redemptive history, God ensured that scripture contained everything that he intended for his people to have, to study, and to obey. We also mean that today the Bible contains everything that we need to know for salvation and for perfectly trusting and obeying God. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've alluded to this. One of you guys have already brought this passage up. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As we think about the sufficiency of Scripture, we know that we can find all that God has said on particular topics. That is, we can find answers to our questions I love how Grudem states it uh, in this doctrine. He says, it enables us to focus our search for God's words on the Bible alone and saves us from the endless task of searching through all the writings of Christianity throughout history or the teachings of the church or through subjective feelings and impressions that come to our minds from day to day in order to find what God requires of us. Aren't you glad of that? Can you imagine there being this endless amount of information that you have to digest just to know what God requires of you to do. I mean, think of the millions of pages that you would have to master to be able to know what God wants you to do if this was not true, if God's word wasn't sufficient, if there was some other source that you had to know about to be able to know what God desires of you. The reality is this. If you lived in a country that was hostile to the gospel, and you had no access to any Christian writing other than the Bible, you would still have everything God intended for you to have in order to know, to trust, and to obey him. Isn't that good news? That you have everything that you need with his spirit and his word to be able to know him, to trust him, and to obey him in your life. Now, the question comes, what benefit then are additional resources? What do you guys think? What, are, what benefit are additional resources if this is a reality? If that's all we need, what benefit are additional resources? Sometimes creeds and confessions can be helpful for us understanding uh, maybe a, a very clear or simple definition of a particular doctrine, right? Um, so people over the course of time have studied and condensed a, a doctrine into a particular sentence or phrase that can be helpful for us. What we're doing here, right? Wayne Grudem is an additional resource. Wayne Grudem's book is not inspired, except for the places where he quotes scripture. Other than that, he's just a man that wrote this additional resource for us to be able to grow and learn and digest and understand scripture. So you guys would hear today say additional resources are helpful in us understanding particular things. So we also recognize that since God added to the words of scripture over a long period of time— Did this doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture apply to the people of the Old Testament who only had portions of what we now call the Bible? Why or why not? What do you guys think? Yes, good. I like that answer. We can move on from there. That was one of those questions. uh, Yes, it did. Um, He gave everything that they needed to know at each stage of redemptive history, right? For what the Israelites needed needed to know about salvation, he revealed that to them it was by, faith, by grace through faith, from the beginning all the way to the end. We recognize that God is the one who takes the initiative in revealing what needs to be revealed. He is not dependent upon us. He is the one that initiates the revelation. He decides when the next piece of information is needed and he's the one that distributes that in the way in which he chooses to do so. So for Christians today, the words that God has given us that we have in the Old and New Testaments together are sufficient for us during the church age. After the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and the founding of the early church as recorded in the New Testament, the assembling of the New Testament canon, no further central redemptive acts of God, that is acts of God that are related to all of God's people for a subsequent time, have occurred. Thus no more words of God have been given to record and for us to interpret those acts. So when Jesus died, rose from the dead, the apostles described and interpreted that for us, there is no further need of redemptive description of what God has done. That act is fully and finally accomplished, and we have that in the Bible. So I encourage you, as you are, uh, as you are growing, uh, that God does not call us to seek special revelation outside of his word. Uh, he says that it is sufficient for us to know uh, what he desires for us to do and to obey. Now, the Spirit of God does work within us as we read his word to give us direction and, and, and how to obey that passage in our particular context, but it is not new revelation. Because as we learned last week, if it is God's word, then to disbelieve or to disobey God's word is, is sin, right? So if it is actually new revelation, then it is binding upon us to believe and to obey. So we'd say that this is the completed canon of God's word, uh, wherein we have all that we need Uh, to know and to obey God. So, final information that we can do as it relates to that. We have a few practical applications for that. Uh, Search the Bible for answers. There's the warning not to add to Scripture. There's a warning not to count any other guidance from God equal to Scripture, Um, that is, dreams or other things. Warning not to add more sins or requirements to those named in Scripture that can lead us towards legalism. Uh, and to be content with scripture. Oftentimes we want God to tell us more than he's told us, but we recognize the sufficiency of scripture says he's told us all that we need to have, all that we need to know. And we can be content with that. Not content like, okay, God, I guess that's all you had to give us. But God, thank you that this is what you've deemed necessary for me to know and to do at this time in history. We can praise God for that. We hope that this podcast was a blessing to you and that you grew in your knowledge of God. If you like this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your friends and your family on social media so that others can hear the truth of God's word. Till next time.